Wistful Thinking is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more things movie and nostalgia podcasts, visit cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome to Wistful Thinking, week three of quarantine. I'm polling Jordan Clark. Nope. I'm not. That's not, not even your name. Not only are you not, it's, yeah, you didn't. It's okay. Try again. These are, okay. times are weird. Try times again. Times are so weird. My name is Kara Gail O'Regan. My co-host's name is Jordan Poland Clark. Jordan, how are you doing? Super weird. Super <laughs> weird. I feel I've reached the phase of quarantine where I'm so bored that I just don't even have any words to say anymore, mm-hmm. which is going to make for a super interesting podcast, let mm-hmm. me tell everyone. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Today, we're going to talk about Todd Haynes, Haynes's, Todd Haynes, Safe by Todd Haynes. <laughs> You're doing great, Kara. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is actually one of my favorite movies. It uh, came out in 1995, but it's a period piece set in 1989, um, starring Julianne Moore in her first starring role. As uh, the IMDb description says that this movie is about an affluent and unexceptional homemaker in the suburbs who develops multiple chemical sensitivity. Um, And this is actually one of my very favorite movies. And I love making people watch it because it's such an interesting, um, like what people get out of it is such an interesting mirror of their own like attitudes about illness and stuff. It also, Um, so this was the first time that I had seen this movie, mm -hmm. and every single shot of it is perfect. Perfect. Um, I mean, I think I haven't seen very many other Todd Haynes movies, but I believe that is how he makes movies. It is. And something that uh, strikes me every single time I watch one of his movies is how much physical distance he manages to put between two characters that are both in the same frame. Like, Yes. It's... It's uncanny, and he does this in, like, almost all of his movies, I think. Um, There are some, like, great scenes in Carol like this where, like, people are in completely different rooms, and they're talking to each other, and they still, the way that the set has been built or the way that uh, he's, like, framing wherever they're shooting, it's like they manage to be in completely separate spaces but still communicating. Um, Which says everything about all of his movies. (laughs) To to your point, it, it... it's a pretty perfect movie mm-hmm. and it does not, it draws no clear yeah. conclusions. It makes people anything. really mad sometimes. <laughs> I don't, I didn't feel mad, but yeah. I do feel like I watched it and was like, cool. Not sure what I just watched. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because it's like, seems like super unsettled it's like yeah unsettling yeah um when they premiered this at Sundance like half the audience got up and walked out (laughs) I'm glad I didn't have that reaction I mean I really I really liked it and honestly it makes me want to like to me because of that it just makes me want to watch it like over and over Mm -hmm. again maybe and to see like what I can pull from it differently yeah, I've seen meetings. it like 10 times and every time I get something else from it. But the thing that made people really mad about it at the time was um, that Todd Haynes, this, you know, vanguard of the new queer cinema, was making this movie about illness at the height of the AIDS crisis that didn't directly address the AIDS crisis. Um, and, and that like the no one in this movie is like, a bad guy necessarily but the one person who like could be taken as a bad guy is the one person in this movie I think there's several people who actually might be bad guys but okay see I I find it really interesting because no one like like people are frustrated with her and frustrated with the situation but no one like the, the doctors that she sees, her husband, like no one's being like an outright asshole about it. Well, but they're that's just not as frustrated true. as she is. There, mm, yes and no. Like, like I think 
by the middle of the movie that's true but Mm -hmm. like literally I wrote down almost no notes about this but here's one that I did write down um like literally her husband says to her I don't want to hear about it yeah like when she first gets sick like he is a monster to her and we can only assume yes (laughs) I don't think that he is at all yes he is I mean like I think we've seen worse and I think worse exists but Mm -hmm. I think as far as like a human being who is in this woman's life like no thank you um (laughs) yeah I mean listen I wouldn't want to be married to him but I don't think I mean, he's a monster I th- by any stretch I of think, the imagination. I think you can see that he's more complex than that eventually once mm-hmm. he, you know, it's like he abandons her, you know, once all this becomes, like, more real to him. Mm-hmm. But, like, he, like, at first he's basically just pissed off at her because he thinks she's lying so she doesn't have to have sex with him. And honestly, who would blame her? <laughs> well, I know because, the fir- like, that first scene in the movie, like, ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I love this movie. Like I said, it's one of my favorite movies. Um, and I, because of my own experience with chronic illness, have a very different read on this movie than most people do. Like most people see it and just kind of see it as this like allegory for like the disease of modernity and like housewife unhappiness and whatever and like that's definitely in there and you can see it but it's also like a very straightforward story about what it's like to get mystery sick um and 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 just how unsettling that experience is and how vulnerable you are to predation and manipulation and how desperate you kind of become just looking for answers and looking for anyone to tell you what is actually going on because no one knows. Um, And it's incredible to me that they made this in like 1993 or whatever, you know, and that like very little has changed for people who experience these kinds of symptoms. Yeah, that was one thing that struck me and like I'm able to view it through like a similar lens, although obviously different from yours, but just because I know you and I talk to you mm-hmm. at length often, like I certainly like was able to have that lens while I watched this. Um, but yeah, it struck me like you could make this today and you wouldn't mm-hmm. have to change a single thing and like it would still be a perfect movie. Right. Or, like, it would still just have just as much to say, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's so interesting to watch it now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Like, of all of of the times. Um, Because even though this isn't explicitly about the AIDS crisis, it's the the backdrop of it is the AIDS crisis and a lot of the stuff that we hear kind of in the background on the radio and, like, the sonic fabric of it um, is referencing what was going on at that time with the AIDS crisis. Um, but so in the in the movie, Julianne Moore's character starts experiencing all of these like mystery allergic reactions and asthma attacks and um, starts to see all of this information around about environmental illness, which is kind of a broad term that refers to really like anything that makes you sick in your environment. So for some people, it might be um, fragrances. For some people, it might be like cleaning products that make them sick. For some people, um, like the big kind of inciting incident for her, even though we see that she's actually had symptoms already, the thing that like really sets it off is that she gets this new couch that's like off-gassing in her house. And at the time, like this all seemed very um crazy (laughs) but now i i think like one thing that has changed is that enough time has elapsed that like we understand that like fragrances and chemicals can make you sick now this is like a thing that people have heard of now right and you know the the words for it have kind of changed and the uh treatments and and diagnostic approach has changed somewhat but um like part of the reason that I love this movie so much is that it mirrors a lot of my experience with um, 
something called mast cell activation syndrome, which is one of my weird diseases. And like, I watched this and I'm like, oh my God, Carol has mast cell activation syndrome. But I think that like anyone with any chronic illness would watch this and be like, oh my God, she has what I have. Um, Yeah. But like the thing that I have does actually make me have, you know, mystery allergic like reactions to things and stuff. So a lot of um, like I in the movie, she goes to a hair salon and gets a perm and gets her nails done and has like a horrible kind of reaction to all the chemical smells and stuff. And like I can't go into salons for that same reason. Um, they do a really good job of like making I mean the so the sound design in this is really good too in addition yeah. to it being like perfectly shot and they do a really good job particularly like at the beginning when she's still kind of doesn't know what's going on and like is experiencing these things like it's so they make all that stuff seem kind of gross mm-hmm. in what way I just like like I felt like she was being poisoned Mm -hmm. when I was watching her get her nails done and, like, you know, her hair permed. Yeah. So I just think they did an effective job of... of that. Yeah. Yeah, I do. do I like the first flyer that she finds is at her gym, and it it says really big, do you smell fumes? (laughs) And the first thing it says is, are you allergic to the 20th century? Mm-hmm. Which I liked. And then it's a whole other list of things that are more specific. But Yeah, and that like uh, that concept of being allergic to the 20th century is like a main, I wouldn't say like thesis for environmental illness, but like definitely is a theme of this movie. And like the, just the way that like her house is furnished and stuff is like, ultra modern um that's actually the interior of her house is Todd Haynes's aunt and uncle's house uh basically like all of the all of the houses in this were like his parents house his aunt and uncle's house his grandparents house um which is funny the I have the criterion blu-ray of this and there's a great director's commentary track with him um, his producer, Christine Vachon, and um, Julianne Moore. And it's really interesting to watch this movie with them talking about it. Especially the thing with the couch, when they like re-deliver the couch um, on the commentary, Christine Vachon was like, and this was when you turned to be Todd and said, am I making a movie about a couch? <laughs> <laughs> Which made me laugh really hard. I mean, a little bit for a minute there, yeah. That was like yeah. a really big plot point for a second. Yeah. I also, yeah. so, so the other thing that this movie really is split into like two different parts. Mm-hmm. It's like the part where she's still living in her life where we meet her and then she leaves to go to this. What, what would you call that place? It's a retreat center. Okay. She goes to a retreat center that also might be a cult. And, <laughs> um, but so when she's in her, regular life like you mentioned that like somehow they do this thing where like there's these there's distance between people who are appearing in the same shot but um what also happens a lot is she appears in shots with the not white people that she employs Mm. often I would actually be curious to go back and watch that again because I don't I don't know that it like I don't know that it went on to make any like kind of further commentary about that or mm-hmm. maybe it was just like that was his way of like illustrating her life like fleshing out her life but like I did find that interesting and then it kind of went away and like had nothing to do with the rest of the movie mm-hmm. interesting I I I'll have to pay more attention to that the next time I watch this. It's like she would be alone, but she wouldn't be alone because the people who worked in her house would be there. Yeah. Interesting. But this character is basically like she's alone regardless of where she is or who she's with. Yeah. And that's that's another thing that happens like often is like even when even when he's not using like two rooms in a single shot to split up people um like she is always separate from the group of people except for one time Mm -hmm. ish 
um, you know, they'll sit in a circle and she'll be like three feet away from everybody else. Like, right. She's, well, she's, she's social very, distancing. Yeah. <laughs> a pioneer. Not far, she's not really far enough, but. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even, even the, the way the camera works, like there are so few close-ups of her. Even though she's the main character in this movie, like the camera is actually like working against your like default sense of like wanting to identify with the main character and like always kind of keeping her at a distance. And really the only kind of close-ups that we get are those um, like unsettling like dolly-in zoom-out shots. Well, it's shot like a horror movie. Yeah. Well, because it is a horror movie. Yeah, it, like not, not on its face, not a but traditional it's one, but yeah, yeah, my favorite kind of horror movie. <laughs> We've talked about. You this. thought you were just gonna watch a nice movie about a housewife, but really, it's a horror. Movie. I didn't think that I was uncomfortable from the moment it started. <laughs> um, we've talked about this before. This like tool that directors use to, <clears throat> excuse me, this tool that directors use to separate the viewer from the character and often Mm -hmm. it's used as a tool um to make us know that somebody doesn't know themselves Mm -hmm. by not allowing us to know them either Mm -hmm. i can't we've like talked about this like a lot in one movie but i can't remember what it was do you remember nope yeah no i can't remember anything we've ever watched Uh, it's interesting that you say that, though, because, like, Julianne Moore in talking about how she kind of embodied the character and developed the character, she's talked a lot about um, the way that she manipulated her voice for this movie. And it's that a like, tiny, it's, it's a little tiny higher. voice. Yeah. Yeah, it's very tiny, and it, like, never actually hits her vocal cords. And she said the words, I'm fine, so many times. <laughs> I, like, almost stopped to start a tally. Yeah. In that, like, tiny voice. Yeah, so, like, even the character, like you said, like, doesn't even know herself and doesn't even fully inhabit her own body and her own space. Well, and that's... she's always trying to take up as little space as possible. I mean, that's... And that's a theme we've talked about a lot before mm-hmm. when we've talked about women, because obviously that's a thing. Um, and I think that's where this movie gets complicated, because... You know, she goes to this retreat center where they basically tell her that this is her own fault for... Okay, what? No, I, I was I was t- nodding along with <laughs> oh, you. Oh, okay. That, yes, that's exactly what happens there. It, it's, um... So, so they're basically telling everybody there that, like, if you're sick, it's your own fault. Something you've done in your life that, has... That, because you're not positive enough and you don't love yourself, which, um... The reason that I made you watch this was because the other day we were talking about Marianne Williamson. Um, oh, yeah. That former, is why we were talking about this. Former uh, candidate for president. Oh, God. I can't. Uh, she really freaks me out. and She makes me very nervous because she's made a career in um, telling people that the reason that they're sick is because they don't love themselves enough. She got her start during the AIDS crisis. Her uh, So the character... The, Peter, the guy who runs the retreat center um, slash cult leader guy, um, is actually based specifically on Marianne Williamson and this other woman named Louise Hay, who you know wrote all these books basically saying, like, if you just tried harder and loved yourself more, you'd be fine, which is the most fucked up thing you can say to someone who's sick. There's a lot I, of fucked up things you can say. And I agree. And I think where this becomes, like, complicated is that, like, you know, it's not like Julianne Moore is such a mentally healthy person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, obviously I disagree with the cult. And obviously I don't think anything that's happening to her is her fault. But, like, I don't think it can be denied that a brain-body connection is also mm-hmm. a real thing. For sure. And so I think that's where this, like, watching this becomes incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. Um, because, they like, a thing that I noticed is that they also go, like, so in her, there's a point near the end of the movie where her husband and stepson come to visit her at the center. And 
she develops a lesion on her head while mm-hmm. he's there. And so it's like you can see her getting worse. Worse. She's getting worse. When yeah. when this man who has like obviously traumatized her in some ways or at least like, you know, been a part of her not knowing herself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like she gets worse when he's there. I don't know. I think the lesion is already starting before he gets there. I but. I didn't notice it before, and then I was mad that I was like, oh, did I miss it? Like, when did this start? I I couldn't tell. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not necessarily him. It 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 actually starts after she goes for for that walk, and um, a truck and she drives gets by. The truck and she is there. Yeah, is exposed to the fumes from that. Um, and which like goes to show you how like unsafe she is there that like they're so close that's such a lie the safety bubble that they say that they're in yeah right and so she goes there expecting to get better and instead she continues to get worse and then in their group sessions is encouraged to believe that the reason that she's getting worse isn't because she's in an unsafe environment, but is because she's just not trying hard enough. And oh boy, what a fucked up thing. (laughs) And I, like, I have felt that way and been told that so many times that it like really grinds my gears. Yeah. Um, but even still like there's, you know, this, this movie does not have the narrative arc that we're, that we're used to seeing in a movie where, you know, act one, things start to get worse, something, you know, something changes, act two, act three, there's a climax, and then, you know, things resolve themselves. At the end of this movie, she's moving into, a, like, igloo for, like, total self-isolation, and it's, it's like, that's not what you expect from it from an illness movie you know like usually it's like you know they start getting sick they're trying to get diagnosed they get diagnosed they get treated and either they die or they get better um but instead in the situation she's actually getting worse and it the movie leaves off with such an unsettled um conclusion that there there is no conclusion i like to think though that like because i think a lot about like where who's carol now like what would she be up to now if she were a real person let's say um and i like to think that the sequel to safe is a terminator 2 style movie where she's been like she's seen some shit and she's ready to fight back so that's my that's my headcanon about this movie I th- yeah, I could see, I mean, I think Carol, so the movie ends not just with her isolated in her igloo, but like, she's looking at herself in the mirror, and she's telling herself that she loves herself for mm-hmm. what we can only assume is the first time ever. Like, we can assume that this is an extremely difficult thing for her to do, and she's doing it for the first time. Right. And so, like, that that's so, it's so confusing, because that's both seems very negative and scary and then Mm. also this positive thing at the same time right um so I think that's but I think because we see both sides of her in that way like I agree with you that like she's a fighter I think she's about to go into some very dark times where she gets stuck in this cult for way too long right but I think that she does break out and do good things Mm mm-hmm yeah, because this is, I mean, this is something that I see a lot of people with chronic illness go through and that I went through myself, which is just like, okay, so I'm sick because I'm doing everything wrong. So if I just do everything right, I'll be fine. And I went through this where I was like eating this extremely restrictive diet and exercising constantly and still being like, why do I feel like I'm dying? Everyone said I would be fine if I just did these things and I feel worse. Um, and I see a lot of people go through that and a lot of people like really, really fully commit to a specific lifestyle that they're told is going to help and like really wind up in a bad place psychologically because they're doing all of the things and they're doing these things right and it's still not helping. And what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this right? Why is it working for other people and not me? And the answer is usually because like the other people have something else going on. (laughs) You know, right. Like every person is not the same. Exactly. And there's not going to be any one size fits all approach to 
treating and managing a chronic condition that you're probably going to have to deal with for the rest of your life. Well, and it's like we've talked about this before, probably while we were recording, where it's like it also isn't a narrative, a straight line either like as as we expect that it will be like Mm -hmm. oh okay this is wrong and if I do this I'll get better and like that's just not how it works for most things really right yeah healing is not linear sometimes there's no usually like I think that we are under this impression that there is going to be like for a long time I was that there was going to be some end point to the suffering that I was experiencing and that like You know, because I had symptoms for two decades before I got like a real accurate diagnosis of what was going on. And I, for a long time, was under the impression that like, if we could just figure out what this is, there will be something to do about it. And then I'll be fine. And um, that's not the case. It turns out there's nothing I can really do about it except, you know, supportive care and managing symptoms and whatever. But there's no... You know, like we in the chronic illness community have a lot of discussions about the concept of a cure, you know, and how, you know, talking about that gives some people hope. But for those of us living with a lifelong condition that comes from like our genes or like the very basic building blocks of what we're made out of like that's not there is no cure there's never going to be a cure so it's real. it can be actually very alienating and um upsetting to take a, a like cure only approach to managing a chronic condition um, well I think I, I think I've always thought the same way about like my own mental illness is like mm-hmm. When I was, like, younger, I thought that, like, one day I would just wake up and it would be different. Like, right. I would be a different person and it would be gone. And, like, if I do X, X, and X and take, like, these medications and whatever, like, you know, then it'll just be gone. And that's, like, mm-hmm. so far from the truth. <laughs> yeah. And it just has to be managed. And, like, it gets managed in different ways at different times. Mm-hmm. And that's it. You just keep going and that's yeah. it. <laughs> it just, it's just, this is just forever. This is going to be for the rest of your life. Yeah. And our, our culture has no room for that. You know, yeah. even, even when it comes to like taking antidepressants, a lot of people think like, oh, I just have to take this for a certain period of time and then it's going to fix my brain <laughs> and well, I'll so be able to stop taking it. So I sent like, you, what? I sent you the book that I am like mm-hmm. at the very beginning of reading. And like, that's basically the premise of that book. Like that guy, the author of that book, like he, hold on, I'll say the name of it because then I don't have to call it that book, but I don't remember what it is. Uh So it's a book called Lost Connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he Subtitled, was, Why You're Depressed and How to Find Hope. Which is like a really shitty subtitle. I don't... I know. I don't like that. But. Well, so... No, is that the subtitle? That's actually, that's part of the main title. Lost Connections, colon, Why You're Depressed and How to Find Hope. Subtitle, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Which I also hate. Like yeah. that is not red what flags reading the book... all over I know, the place. For I know me. <laughs> that's not so far. That is not what reading the book feels like at all. Although yeah. I could be wrong. I'm still like very at the beginning. But like basically, this dude was like depressed his whole life. Didn't really recognize it as depression. Like he was just like, I'm sad. Why am I sad all the time? And then eventually, one day, someone was like, ah, I think you're depressed. And he was like, Holy shit! It has a name. And like that, he found that really empowering. And this mm-hmm. was also like in the mid '90s when like you know SSRIs were like a big thing and so for him he was like oh my gosh it has a name that means it has a cure Mm. and basically doctors at the time like were acting similarly they were just like yeah you just take this drug and he was like yeah I just take this drug and so like he did and like you know it would like stop working and then he would take a higher dose and then be like I'm fine again and then he had this therapist that was like hey I feel like you're still depressed and you're like not wanting to like see that and it took him like many more years to be like oh no that therapist was right like because he was telling himself this story of like being cured because of the medication or whatever and um then he was like oh that's not real um 
And then I think really what the book is about, which is I think why I wanted to read it. I don't remember. I do this thing where like I belong to a library that has like zero books. So like every like I just end up on wait lists for books for like months and then I'll get the book and be like, why did I want to read this? <laughs> um, but what I think this book is actually about is like that the circumstances of like our world and like our capitalist system basically make it impossible for us to be happy like mm. legitimately. Like there's a reason why anxiety and depression are like so, so, so prevalent and like it's not really like an individual's fault like it's just like the world that we've created really well it just makes us happy in some ways yeah. it's never anyone's fault <laughs> no, no 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 but yeah. like but we in our culture assign you know value and whatever the opposite of value is to people's health issues and it's like and especially like we literally tie health insurance to employment you know like that like you're not like if you're sick it's because like like there's something wrong with you morally or that you're not working hard enough or whatever and it's really fucked up yeah like there's just something that i'm supposed to do like right well, because then that way we can continue to pretend that we don't all live in a society, that we're not all connected and responsible for each other, and that, like, you know, maybe people have to kind of pick up the slack sometimes for can when we maybe people are having a hard this, time. Maybe at this point during the pandemic, we can all just agree that that's not true. <laughs> can we just, like, all meet there? Right. And that illness is not some indicator that you're morally unfit to be part of society. It, it doesn't doesn't work that way it doesn't pick and choose i mean sure rich people will generally be less sick than people who are not rich but that's only because they have access and can afford to pay for anything that they want you know or need yeah yeah but even still like she's like in the movie carol is obviously a very wealthy woman and even she can't seem to find you know the answer because there isn't one. Oh yeah okay but so I want to talk about I want to talk about Carol because mm-hmm. um, yeah like I just I feel like the other I don't know wait I guess I have a question for you like because I know you see this movie through the lens of chronic illness which mm-hmm. makes sense and like what do you what do you see when you put on the other lens of like this woman's life this woman has not been allowed to know herself be herself like why why put those two things like so close together like like why what do you see when you say those two things you mean like her illness and her lack of personhood yeah um, I don't know. And I think the first time that I saw this movie, I was annoyed by that. And I was like, why, why did you have to make it be this like pathetic character that's so hard to sympathize with? Um, but I think that that is maybe kind of on purpose. Um, she's kind of a vessel, you know, and like an empty one at that. Um, but I think, no, I don't think she's empty at all. Why? Tell me more well, about that. Well, I think it's, I think, I think it's easy to believe that she doesn't know herself and that she's mm-hmm. never made, like, a single decision in her life that probably mm-hmm. was, like, on purpose and for her and, like, but, but I don't think that empty is the right word for that. I think okay. there's probably a lot, because if, if she was truly an empty character, this would be so boring, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously, Julianne Moore is, like, an incredible actress, and, like, I believe, like, it's, like, you can just look at her and know that, like, there's probably something there. It's just that we don't know what it is because she doesn't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And, like, we both just made up this story for after the movie for how we know she's going to fight, right? So, like, to me, that says that, like, this is just a person who's not been awakened yet. Yeah. It's not a person who's going to be empty right. and then die. You know? Yeah, and I think that so many people are, like Carol, kind of just f- going through the motions and floating through their life and not really 
fully connecting with who they are inside and fully inhabiting their body. Um, so I think that this is actually a very common experience that, you know, it's not until something really fucked up happens to you that you find out who you are. Like we talked about oh. last time about like finding out who you are in times of crisis. This is, yeah, I do think that, yes, if this movie were to, were to continue, we would watch her kind of do that. But mm-hmm. here, here's the other, here's why I think it's maybe important in some ways that she, that it's this woman that we're following because she she's a woman with money but without choices because mm-hmm. like we have to assume that she like grew up you know grew up in a time came from a family where it was like you're gonna get married you're gonna marry a dude that has money you're gonna be a homemaker as she calls it she almost says housewife and then she's mm-hmm. like I'm a homemaker um and you know that is what her life is predetermined to be so that means she doesn't have choices because she's not and never has been independent in any way and so I think the interesting thing about watching her is is that remains true whether she's with her husband or whether she's with um the people at the retreat is like she cannot she does not have the resources like physically mentally whatever to be independent in any way and so she gets put in yeah like to put her in those positions looks different on her than it would look on a different character mm-hmm. i think about that a lot because i listen to you must remember this a lot mm-hmm. and like every story about every woman on you must remember this is basically just like about a woman with no choices yeah. and uh, you know who succumbs to in that case like the hollywood system um, like in every way shape and form and is like completely destroyed by it and like it's just like there's a whole lost like so many lost generations of women because mm-hmm. of the circumstances they get put in not that not that men don't necessarily also suffer from other things that trap them mm-hmm. um, but it's just so specific yeah. when yeah. because women I mean, even still struggle to, like, obtain the same amount of power in the world and in their lives. agency, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the scariest things in this movie is, (laughs) I find it so disturbing every time I watch it, how much cow's milk she drinks in the first act. (laughs) I didn't notice that, although I do remember her saying it out loud. Yeah. She drinks, like, at least six full glasses of milk in this movie. Ew. I know. I'm like, oh, God, girl, that's why you're sick, which is not true, but it's definitely not helping things. Um, <laughs> well, even her doctor tells her that. Yeah. and she, he Because he asks if she's, like, drinking or doing drugs, and she's like, oh, no, I'm just a total milkaholic. Which is <laughs> gross. <laughs> yeah. And, like, very, like... <sighs> very feels like um like almost like it's like almost like she's in the wrong decade it's like she's Mm -hmm. kind of belongs in like the wholesome like the fake wholesome like 1950s or something Mm -hmm. yeah but but also um i don't remember what attitudes were about milk at the time but those the like late 80s early 90s diet culture that we see in this where her friend like goes on a fruit diet and convinces her to do it with her. Yeah. And it's like the fruit that they order is a fruit salad. (laughs) Yes. Which I find hilarious because it's like mostly canned fruit, I think fruit salad. Um, I think it depends where you're ordering your fruit salad. True. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Fun fact, the waitress in that scene, Todd Haynes' sister. Okay. I do like the speech that Claire gives. Like, I think, like, she's the redheaded lady. She's the redheaded lady with the perm, which I'm like, excuse me, like, you're not supposed to be near chemicals. How is your hair permed? But, um. So, when Carol gets her hair permed in that scene, it took them all 
day to be ready to shoot that because they kept trying to curl her hair and it would just come out like immediately. Oh, because Julianne she has, like, just has beautiful, thick, straight hair. Straight hair. Yeah. It was just like wouldn't hold the curl. And so by the time they like finally were ready to shoot, it was like 430 in the afternoon. Um, and then, and so in the director's commentary, Todd Haynes was like, and it was after that, that I figured out that wigs are a good idea. That's what and I was going to say. Did why, didn't they just get a, why didn't they just get a wig? Yeah. Um, uh, oh, right. But Claire, like out, like in a different context, like, but, and, and also she's kind of gaslighting or not mm-hmm. gaslighting her. She's like Yeah, that's not the right just, word for it, but it's they're never manipulative. Letting her speak. Yeah, they're yeah. never letting her speak for herself still, which is something that we've seen is obviously quite challenging for her. And mm-hmm. they never leave her the space to do it. They tell mm-hmm. her how she feels and then they tell her that it's normal. But she mm-hmm. never says, This is how I feel. Yeah. Um, but she only asserts herself once in the entire movie and it's after she had that seizure and she's in the hospital bed and the doctor and her husband are there. And someone comes in and starts spraying oh, yeah. something. And she's like, can you not do that? <laughs> it's like the only time in the movie that she raises her voice or like tries to assert herself. And the doctor is like hammering her like, what would make this happen? And she just whispers, the chemicals. <laughs> Which kind of makes me laugh. But at the same time, I'm like, <laughs> yes, girl, state your truth. The chemicals. sorry you were saying i don't know i just like what so like the like there are some things that claire says in her speech that are that are nice things yeah well that's what's so fucked up about that place and that group is like and what's so manipulative manipulative and scary about it and the real life people and groups like this that exist which is that it's a lot of it is accurate but they twist it and manipulate it in this way that then kind of turns it into instead of being something helpful something really destructive I think yeah and and something that yeah, it just becomes super duper negative and scary instead of like instead of love being like the positive force that it well positivity can be and should be. Yeah, forced positivity can be really toxic and really oppressive. It's extremely and, annoying, and it's yeah. why I hate Instagram. Yeah, and it's something that I talk about all the time in my chronic illness work and when talking to other chronically ill people. Um, And it's one of the reasons why I love suffering the silence so much as an entity and the the stuff that we do with them is is like we need to make space for how much this sucks like this fucking blows it's a really fucked up situation and if we just say like we just got to stay positive and just focus on the positives you don't allow people the room to grieve which is right it doesn't allow for a full range of emotions that are actually happening Mm -hmm. whether you acknowledge them or not right they're still there yeah and so then not acknowledging them is like is bad yeah and i think that like i struggle with that sometimes hope not with most people that i hang out with anymore but like people you know people want to help and when they want to help you they say things that do end up sounding like like little microaggressions yeah and it can be really frustrating to try to explain that to somebody mm-hmm. you know well, because people will always try and put a positive spin on something because they think that that's somehow helpful. Right. And whenever you're trying to be helpful, just don't, because it's usually not. Or, or you know, the thing say, that's what, helpful. What can is, I do to help you? How, like, what? Yeah. What can help you right now? Like, what kind of language helps you? Like, or just listen. Yeah. I mean, that's an option. Just let them. T- talk don't try and fix it you know acknowledge how hard it must be I've tried to make a habit out of like with like with a lot of my friends I try to be like do you want me to help you fix this right now Mm. or you just you want to talk about you just need Mm -hmm. to keep talking about it like what what do you want right now (laughs) so my friend Kate is this 
amazing sex educator, but she also does a lot of work around empathy. And she has this phrase that she tries to teach people, which is when somebody is like venting or they're talking about a difficult situation, something that can be really helpful to ask is, do you want empathy right now or do you want strategy? Yeah. Because strategy is like, okay, what can we do to change the situation? Empathy is just like listening and acknowledging the hurts and that it sucks and that like, but like also assuring them that they're not necessarily alone in the situation, which can also be alienating. You gotta, you gotta read the room, you know, but like, yeah. Um, People are very bad at empathy in general because so often we're so, you know, we're all the main characters of our own stories. And so like a lot of times when somebody is telling you something difficult, it the impulse is to kind of talk about something difficult that you think is somehow relative, like somehow relevant to the situation. And very often that turns into a kind of like one upmanship or, or like a complete, um, completely like bypassing what the person is trying to tell you. simply by like trying to mirror what they're talking about you're actually building a wall between you so just well and i think that that just goes back to being like what do you want right now because like there are some instances where people do that for me and i'm like actually like hearing about other people's experience Mm -hmm. yeah sometimes it can be helpful yeah for sure the right thing in the right moment right and you and I are both people who whine to self-soothe. We sure so. <laughs> do. You should see I, our Facebook messages. <laughs> yeah, just complaining constantly. Um, yeah, it's hard. And navigating this stuff is is difficult. And we don't have many good models for, you know, how to have those conversations. But I've, like, I've tried to just like in my life be like because for example I know that I'm a person who whines to self-soothe like that shit shows up pretty much constantly and so if I'm in a situation that I know is about to be challenging like it happens when I train sometimes like if I'm with people who don't know me it's like I'm like okay here's what I'm gonna do it's fine you don't have to acknowledge it I'm just gonna do it and then we're gonna move on <laughs> like, mm-hmm. just gotta get it out of your system you know so if, like I try to also be like a where and because all you can do is like teach people how to react to you too right like especially people yeah. who you are dealing with for the first time mm-hmm. I don't know yeah give other people the tools to help you which is extremely challenging absolutely and I don't even know if I'm good at it I just know that I try yeah and so it. many of us <laughs> don't know what those tools even are well no no yeah you know like Carol in this movie certainly doesn't know how to help other people help her. No. Or how to no. help herself or what she needs or what is even going on with her. No, I, it's um, a thing that takes a lot of practice and like requires mm-hmm. like outside help to learn mm-hmm. a lot of times. And asking for help too. Oh, Learning to ask for help oh, is one of the, the hardest worst. things. The worst. The one of the scenes that um I find the most distressing in this movie and that like always makes me cry is the baby shower scene where she's at this party with this group of women and she goes to the bathroom and they're kind of like talking about her while she's not there, like how she like doesn't look okay and somebody heard that she's seeing a therapist and blah, 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 blah. And then uh, she eats some ice cream cake and within a few minutes starts having an asthma attack and a few women rush over to help her Wait, before but, that, the kid is sitting on her lap. There's a yeah. child on her lap. And she, she has a child like, sitting on her lap. Even before, you can tell that, like, you can tell something is going to happen because that's one of the parts that's shot like a horror movie where it's like mm. a slow pan mm-hmm. in. But um, the kid starts crying before you can even really tell what's happening to Carol. And mm-hmm. so you just see this child getting upset first, which is, I was very stressed out by. Yeah. Um. But, like, when the other women see that something's happening, the two women that were talking about her behind her back are, like, paralyzed with fear. They can't move. They're just, like, standing there staring at her. And the other women are, like, rushing her. Somebody's going to call an ambulance. Like, but the thing 
and I'm, oh God, I'm getting chills just talking about this. The thing that's like so stressful for me about that scene is that like when you're having a medical emergency or like a crisis or whatever, or you don't even know what's happening, it's super unhelpful for a bunch of people to gather around you and look at you and, and tell you to calm down. <laughs> I knew that's what you were going to say because we have talked about this before. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's <laughs> like really at so stressful. Um, and so this is something that I have to navigate um on a fairly regular basis, like I am familiar with enough with my symptoms now that like I can manage them. And sometimes I know like I just have to sit down and like drink a bunch of water and like chill for a moment. And that's not always compatible with whatever it is that I'm trying to do in life at any given time. This actually happened to me a few weeks ago at work where we were supposed to like go and stand up in front of a bunch of people. Um, and I was really dizzy that morning and like I I knew I was fine but I also knew that if I stood up for more than 30 seconds I would probably pass out and that doing that would be a bad idea so I had to like wave one of my coworkers into my office and be like please don't freak out I'm not okay right now but I'm fine I just I can't go and stand up and I also can't be in a group of people who are all going to ask me if I'm okay right now because <laughs> I'm not but I'm fine I have this under control I just need to not do that you know um and it's it's always like because a lot of times when you communicate that you're not okay you then wind up having to comfort the other people around right, because you. everyone else freaks out everyone else freaks out yeah I mean I've had this happen in doctor's offices <laughs> Where, like, I'm the one assuring them that, like, yes, I know my heart is beating at a dangerous rate right now, but I'm fine. Are you okay? Because you seem not okay, you know? Um, And it's just, it's so fucked up and it's so stressful. And so, like, every time I watch that with the women, like, rushing over, and they're, like, barely even laying hands on her. They're, like, afraid to touch her, but they're, like, crowding her. It just, like, really stresses me out and makes me so upset. Yeah, yeah. There was another thing when I watched it this time that I got really upset by, and now I don't remember what it was. But it's so interesting to be able to watch this movie over and over again, and like every time find something different that is like that really hits home or is like super unsettling for me. Oh, it's when she is sitting in bed writing a letter, and her husband comes in the room. And she said, she says like, oh God, what is this? You know, that like, because I've been there like before I was able to find the accurate diagnosis, like, am I dying? Like, because it really feels like I'm dying and I don't know what this is and no one can tell me what this is. And it's so, so scary. Um, And I just, that's the reason that I love this movie so much is that like, it captures like that it's like it makes that fear so palpable this fear that like I lived with for so long that like and and it's such an isolating experience and I love forcing other people to watch it (laughs) so I can be like this is what it's like in wistful thinking spirit when did you first see this so I first saw a clip of this back in art school like 15 years ago um, and like thought about it for years and years and years. And it was always really hard to find this movie because it hadn't been reprinted. And, um, you know, it was just like this little independent movie, even when it came out. So um, I finally saw it for the first time, like a couple of years ago when the Criterion Blu-ray came out, like the whole thing. And I am just obsessed with it. <laughs> So in my art school, we watched a different Todd Haynes, Julianne Moore movie. Wait, we, oh, yeah. But we also, in that um, American independent cinema class that we took together, we saw Poison. They screened Poison. We did? Yeah. I've seen that. I think so. What happens in it? It's actually, um, so that's Todd Haynes' first feature. And it's like a... um, What's the word that I'm looking for? Hang on. Brain not working. Is that the... No. 
Is that the stop motion Barbie doll one? No, that is Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, but which I, is a oh, biopic okay. about Karen Carpenter starring Barbies. It's amazing. I know. I it's really so want to see it. I was reading about it today. But, okay, wait, then what's Poison? Poison? I don't think I've seen that. No, I'm pretty sure we watched it in that class. Um, it's like a series of vignettes, so it's not like a full narrative feature. It's like about a few different situations that are, and and it, it was like technically about the AIDS crisis, but also not explicitly. And yeah, um, but it's also good and very interesting. But yeah, no, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story is like truly amazing i love his movies so much sorry i interrupted you what were you saying i don't know i was just saying in art school i watched a different todd haynes movie Mm -hmm. um i feel like it was at nyu we watched um far from heaven Mm -hmm. which is also an incredible movie and it's based on not seen that one it's very good and it's based on a movie called all that heaven allows um, which is also very good, and watch them together if you're going to watch them. Um, I won't even talk about them very much more because um, they're not so so related to this. Besides the director, and I mean, like obviously the style is really similar, and there are a lot of similar tools used um, because um, the main woman in that movie is also a woman who's like very trapped in her life. Um, um, Todd Haynes has. I don't know if he describes his work this way or if it's uh, something that he's heard other people ascribe to his work, but he said that he makes movies about women in houses. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can, yeah, I could see that. Even just, I mean, based on those two movies, that's exactly right. Yeah, and Carol, like his movie, Carol, is also that as well. I'm just reading about Poison. Yeah, I don't remember watching this, but I believe you. There's a lot of college that I have blocked out. Was it the same class where we watched Gummo? Yes. Because I'm still traumatized from that. That's the old, that's, <laughs> nope, I can remember watching two movies in that class. One was Gummo, and one was the one about the woman who goes mm. crazy and leaves her family. Oh, a woman under the influence. Yes, yeah, that one. Yeah, that was also kind of traumatizing. <laughs> I have to rewatch that, I think. Um, Agree. Yeah. I think that was, like, one of my parents, like, one of my parents, like, first dates. They went and saw that movie, which honestly explains a lot. Not a great date movie. <laughs> nope. <laughs> but tells you everything you need to know about my parents. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I wonder why his most recent movie is a, it's described in this Wikipedia as a legal thriller. Oh, so last year he came out with Dark Waters, which I have not yet seen, but it is actually also about environmental illness because it's about, I think, the DuPont chemical company. Yeah. Yeah, um, It's like an Aaron Brockovich situation. It just seems like, I mean, environmental themes aside, it seems like a far cry from women in houses. Some of his other work. Yeah, from women in houses. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. Um, I yeah, maybe. I'm looking forward to it, though. He also made this wonderful little movie called Wonderstruck that is... God, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, it's two movies, really. One is about this... Okay, so on IMDb, it's described as... Um, tells the tale of two children separated by 50 years. In 1927, Rose searches for the actress whose life she chronicles in her scrapbook. And in 1977, Ben runs away from home to find his father. And both of the children are deaf. Um, The girl is played by the little girl that was in A Quiet Place. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, oh my God, it's so good. It's so, it's just like not... Like any other movie you've seen. So I highly recommend it. Okay. All of his movies are so good. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. And looking at his IMDb, I see that he's working on a documentary about the Velvet Underground, which I am very excited about and didn't know about until right now. I think he's a fun director. Like, it would be fun to watch all of his movies because it's not like he has such a large body of work that it's like mm-hmm. would be overwhelming to do that. Yeah. But he does have such a clear point of view. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and it's so interesting to watch a movie like Carol and then go back and watch something like Safe because Safe is so early in his career and yet his that point of view and that voice is like so clear already, which I think is really cool. Ooh, he also made an HBO miniseries of Mildred Pierce, which I think was a... Um, I watched that. Joan Crawford movie, but like back in the day. Yeah, I liked it a lot. It was good. I Starring did too. Kate Winslet. Yeah. Also, a woman in a house. Do you have more things to say about Carol? You mean about safe? I'm sorry. I st- yep, yep. <laughs> I, it's very confusing I that he's made it, two movies about e- women named Carol. Yeah, I've not even seen Carol, and I was oh, getting so confused good. while Safe was on because I yeah. knew that he had a movie named Carol. I have the screener. I don't know why I didn't watch it. Oh, it's beautiful. It's maybe my favorite Christmas movie, <laughs> which says everything that you need to know about me personally, but it's beautiful and so sad and truly heartbreaking. And Kate Blanchett. I mean, Kate Blanchett in like gorgeous 50s period barb. Yeah. Um, I'll never be done talking about safe, but I think that's all the things I have to say for now. Okay, that's all the things I have to say until I watch it again mm-hmm. one day. I th- Thus far this year, I've watched it once a month <laughs> for various reasons. But uh, maybe I'll just watch it once a month every month throughout 2020. It seems appropriate, doesn't it? Sure, why not? There are no rules just at get this re- point. Just get really upset. <laughs> watch a movie and get really upset once a month. Does your bus to finish. Oh, yeah, I forgot I was driving the bus. Um, how, how, how do I land? <laughs> you want me to do it? <laughs> yes, please. Well, Kara, uh, do you want anyone to find you anywhere? Not really. Um, cool. I'm on Instagram at jordopc. Uh, we're, down, we're doing a weekly schedule now because what else are we even doing with our lives? Um, I don't know about you, but I have been very busy. I haven't been. I am so bored. Like I said at the beginning, I'm reaching new levels of boredom. I'm not doing nothing, but it's just, it's bad. Uh, but it could be worse. Not complaining, just whining to self-soothe. Um, so we'll be back in a week. Uh, who knows what the world will be then? Who knows what we're going to watch? We'll find out. Bye. Bye.